Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the China History Podcast. For the past six months, we've been chronicling the history of China from the Xia and Shang Dynasty, where recorded history began, down through the ages, and now we have reached the last of the twenty or so odd dynasties of Imperial China. The Qing Dynasty ran from 1644 to 1911, and that's the last dynasty. Last week, we saw how the Manchus set themselves up in China. The early years of the Qing saw quite a bit of turbulence as the politics swung back and forth between pro-Chinese Manchus and anti-Chinese. But once the Kangxi Emperor comes into his own, the country slips into high gear and, by almost any account, was the most admired and the richest nation on the planet. The time of the three great Qing emperors, Kangxi, Yongzheng, and Qianlong, was a period spanning over thirteen decades. Pretty much since the time of the Han Dynasty, China's been up and down. China would reach all kinds of amazing heights during the Han, the Tang, and the Ming, and other times in between. But the first hundred years of the Qing was a very good time in China. The country and the civilization had the respect and admiration of the world, as news and information spread more easily in the 18th century than ever before. More people came to learn about China. Chinoiserie was all the rage, and even the common people might even dress up their humble digs with some porcelain bell or sandalwood fan, or if they were swells, maybe a blue and white Jingde Jun teapot. The finest silk in the world was called Shantong silk that came from Shandong Province. The most prized cotton was called Nanking, and of course, the blue and white ceramics were iconic of everything that Westerners saw in China—exotic, far away, and highly refined. Under Kangxi, China boomed. The population continued its rapid growth, going back to the Ming Dynasty. China was by far already the most populous nation on earth. A whole slew of practical reforms were carried out under Kangxi that led to prosperity and forward progress for most of the six decades of his reign. And then, after doing so many brilliant things, the Kangxi Emperor dies without naming an heir from amongst his twenty sons. So you can guess what happened. Well, one of those sons was able to use his particular advantages, especially with his military connections, to get himself onto the throne. And this Yongzheng Emperor, the fourth son of Kangxi, he becomes the new emperor amidst all kinds of rumor and suspicion regarding his alleged usurpation of the throne. He turned out to be a decent emperor, so from a Machiavellian sense, I suppose it's not a bad thing that he sort of grabbed the throne following his father's death. This emperor was sort of a buffer between Kangxi and Qianlong. Kangxi and his grandson Qianlong both ruled for sixty years apiece, but the emperor we are going to look at today, the Yongzheng Emperor, he reigned for just shy of thirteen years, from 1723 to 1735. My American comrades across this great land might know that the father of our country, George Washington, was born during this reign of the Yongzheng Emperor. As the Yongzheng Emperor's era began, it was the Closing years of Peter the Great's splendid reign in Russia, and Louis the Fifteenth was the King of France. The Yongzheng Emperor, like all emperors, had a personal name: Yingzheng, a posthumous or temple name; Shizong, and of course his era name by which we will refer to him, Yongzheng. 
Since the Yongzheng Emperor was a Manchu, he also, of course, had other names as well. The Yongzheng Emperor was no young pup when he took the throne. He was already a trained and wizened 44-year-old man to have survived the rat race going on between all the various factions that surrounded many of Kangxi's 20 surviving sons was a feat in itself. He had to be intelligent, capable, and exhibit good leadership skills to come out on top amidst so much competition. He was forever wary of his dubious ascension to the throne, and any brothers who he felt were a threat to him, he locked them up in prison, along with their families, of course. There's a story that says, allegedly, the throne was supposed to be passed to the 14th son, according to Kang Shi's will, but by cleverly changing one single Chinese character on the will by adding a single stroke, Yong Zheng became the official heir. But everyone suspected him after that. The Yongzheng Emperor wasn't a flashy guy or taken to any outrageous acts of buffoonery or anything like that. What really defined the Yongzheng Emperor was his attention to the details of administering the government. Of all the Qing emperors, no one was as skilled a manager of the levers of state than him. He was as great an administrator as he was an innovator of government. Now, he was also very cruel, cold-blooded, and autocratic when he wanted to be. But the machinery of government never ran better than during this emperor's brief reign. Among his obsessions was curbing inefficiency and corruption. Efficiency and honesty in government was what the Yongzheng emperor devoted himself to. As far as reforming the tax collection out in the rural areas, there too he put in a working system. Even the elites of society felt the squeeze. But revenue came pouring into the treasury in amounts unheard of before in China, and this vast wealth and revenues accumulated during the reign of Yongzheng was one of the direct causes of the glory seen under his son and successor, the Qianlong Emperor. Now, one of the ways this emperor was so good at running things is because he utilized a system began under his father, the Kangxi Emperor. These were called secret palace memorials. Memorials were you know, basically petitions. It was a written statement of facts along with some kind of request that someone from below was seeking from someone from above. Confucian bureaucrats had traditionally controlled this whole system. But Kangxi, he learned not to entirely trust this system, and so he began to deal in palace memorials that were for his eyes only, or maybe someone he might designate. It was for important matters between someone who the emperor trusted and with the emperor himself, personally. In other words, when this memorial was handed to the emperor, it was still sealed and only the emperor read it. Then he would dip his brush into vermilion ink that was used exclusively by the emperor, and he would write his comments and instructions directly onto the document. Then it would be sealed up and sent along to its ultimate destination. And thus did the Yongzheng Emperor rule his empire and cut through magnitudes of red tape we could only imagine. This is how the matter of taxation was cleaned up in the countryside. Through this system of secret palace memorials, the Emperor found out how corrupt and venal the officials were out in the rural areas, and he was able to replace these corrupt officials with those he trusted. Then, once good people were in place, the emperor saw to it that their salaries were increased, which they called, quote, nourishing honesty. The system then worked as it was supposed to. Part of the taxes raised actually went to the county coffers to support things like irrigation works, roads, schools, bridges, and other needs particular to the countryside. 
It truly was a testament to this emperor that he was able to get so many crucial and necessary things done. We've seen throughout Chinese history how there were so many emperors who, although they loved the perks, were utterly bored and uninterested with the job of being emperor. The Yongzheng emperor ranks among the best of the best when it came to administration and managing the levers of state. Not only did this method cut through all the red tape and get things done faster, but it was also a great tool of intimidation that the emperor used against not only the Confucian bureaucrats at court, but the always scheming Manchu nobles as well. Like his father, the Yongzheng emperor was known to stay up till all hours of the night, reading these memorials and writing all his comments. Many of these palace documents, by the way, survive to this day. Another achievement of the Yongzheng emperor worth noting was his sponsorship of the Gujin Tushu Jicheng. This was a complete collection of basically everything that had ever been written since the earliest times to the present. The purpose was to unite five millennia of Chinese culture into a single work. It was sort of a massive encyclopedia, the equivalent of 800,000 pages long and using 100 million Chinese characters. It was begun under his father, the Kangxi Emperor, and the management of the project was trusted to one of Yongzheng's brothers, who one of them he couldn't stand. So, after the brother spends all his time putting this massive work together, Yongzheng then goes and scratches his name off the list and credits the work to the Kangxi Emperor instead. In the area of foreign relations, Yongzheng continued stable relations with Russia. New treaties were signed in 1727-1728, and good relations were kept with the Russians as a way to keep them from forming any kind of friendship alliance with the dreaded Tsungar Mongols. These were oirats from the the western part of Mongolia, which constituted the northwestern fringe of the Qing Empire. If you recall from the last podcast, the Tsungar Mongols and their fearsome leader, Galdan, were defeated by the forces led by Kangxi. Galdan died in 1697, but again, his people were now making a resurgence, and it was most unsettling to the Qing. In 1716-1717, the Tsungars invaded Tibet and were causing the Qing all kinds of grief out there. So, the Yongzheng Emperor inherits this unstable situation out in the western frontiers of the empire. During his reign, he had to go to all kinds of lengths to pacify them, cajole them into submission with various kinds of truces and diplomatic measures. They were a constant stone in the Qing government's boot until the time of the next emperor when we'll see the Tsungars finally defeated. Whereas the Kangxi emperor was an outdoorsman who loved the hunt and to be on the back of a horse in wide open spaces, the Yongzheng emperor, he liked to stay put and never engaged in the kinds of grand tours of the south that his father famously did. The Yongzheng emperor's main forms of recreation revolved around his devotion to Lama Buddhism. This emperor wasn't a big fan of the Catholic Church. He tolerated them in as much as he was interested in their science and technology. So the Catholics were welcome except for the religion part. One particular incident was recorded in history that involved two Jesuit priests who were hunting for some big game in the form of the emperor himself. The idea was to convert the emperor and sort of turn him into a, a kind of Constantine the Great or something. 
Now, in order to bring the emperor over to the one true faith, it involved a lot of behind-the-scenes work. These Jesuits colluded with some palace officials, and they communicated in a written code that used the Roman alphabet. Well, anyway, to make a long story short, they were found out and made to answer for all these secret messages being passed back and forth. And remember, going back to the very beginning of his reign, the emperor was particularly paranoid about his position as emperor and always kept an eagle eye out for anyone who exhibited the slightest kind of disloyalty. And the worst thing you can do was call him a usurper. Well, it was bad luck for the Jesuits in that the one brother of the emperor who they were in cahoots with was the one that Yongzheng particularly distrusted. So you can imagine what he was thinking. In short, this didn't result in an all-out ban of Catholicism, but let's just say that this Yongzheng era was one in which the church most definitely did not thrive, and they kept their heads down and stayed out of politics and avoided forming any factions. Let's take another look at something that reveals the character of this emperor. There was something called the Liu Liuliang Affair. Liu Liuliang was a scholar who wrote his blisteringly anti-Manchu works in the late 17th century. He died in 1683, but his works that were very anti-Manchu and also very disparaging of Central Asians as well. Uh, nonetheless, you can imagine under the Manchu Qing yoke, the Han Chinese saw a good deal of merit in these works. There was a young teacher named Zheng Jing who was very impacted by these writings, and it filled his head with all kinds of crazy ideas. In his enthusiasm and naivete, he approached a local general named Yue Zhongqi, who feigned interest in the plan to overthrow the Manchus and take China back for the Chinese. And, of course, he dredged up all the old talk about how the emperor was all along a usurper, and Yue Chi spills the beans to the emperor in 1730, who then goes and schools himself in these writings by Liu Liuliang, and he is totally appalled by what he reads. It came as a shock to the emperor that still, after all these years, people were still talking about this usurpation thing and had such strong sentiments against the Manchus. So, the emperor personally passes judgment on this matter and does three things. First, he has the grave of Liu Liuliang dug up and has his body exhumed and dismembered. Then, any surviving members of Liu's family were either enslaved or exiled to the frontier regions. The second thing he did was write a long, angry, and detailed rebuttal to Liu's writings and using all his writing skills, gives what he considers clear proof that he, the Yongzheng Emperor, was the heir to the Kangxi Emperor. Then, the last thing he does is, to show what a benevolent Confucian sovereign he was, he pardons Zheng Jing with only a reprimand, calling him young, careless, and impressionable. It's right about now, during the reign of the Yongzheng Emperor, that the whole matter of opium addiction on a massive scale starts to rear its ugly head. Now, opium smoking has been going around since the 11th century, but with the introduction and widespread popularity of tobacco in China in the 17th century, along with all these new opium smoking techniques that had come from Taiwan, it really starts to surge right about now. Madak was all the rage now in China. Madak was a mixture of opium and tobacco. Yongzheng sees this, and in 1729 he acts quickly. Now, we didn't have the Opium War yet, and the so-called foreign mud hadn't quite yet acquired the reputation it later would under the next emperor. 
The emperor declares a ban on opium, but there wasn't any past precedent about how to deal with this, so measures were taken to deal with this. It included uh, treating both dealers and users harshly. Dealers had to wear the kang for a month, and then they were banished to the frontier. Now, the kang, or mucha, as it was also called in Mandarin, was like a was like a yoke worn around a person's neck that was very, very heavy. Unlike the pillory, which was our closest Western equivalent, the kang wasn't fixed to the ground and had to be carried around wherever the offender went. On the wooden surface would be listed the person's name, his crimes, and where he had come from. This was a very common form of Chinese corporal punishment, and you saw it all the way into the 20th century. Users and growers who were arrested faced punishment like, you know, a hundred strokes of the cane. While these measures made some headway as far as curbing this vice, it hardly stopped it. And as we all know from a much, much earlier podcast on the Opium War, this drug reaped all kinds of social problems and humiliation on China. To show his uh, social progressive stripes, this emperor liberated the so-called mean people. These were not people who were mean in the sense of hateful or malicious, but rather mean in the sense of humble origins or low in social status. I suppose you could call them sort of hereditary untouchables, like uh, you might see in India. They were terribly discriminated against, and a career in government was right out. No chance of that, and they couldn't even participate in the civil service exams. These people who lived this mean existence included uh, the singers and musicians who played at funerals and weddings, particularly those from Shanxi and Shanxi. There were also these hereditary servants and beggars who came from Anhui and Jiangsu, Thrown in were also all manner of boatmen, oyster fishermen, pearl divers, and mixed in as well, you had uh, hut dwellers who gathered hemp and indigo near the Zhejiang-Fujian border near Wenzhou. These were amongst the so-called mean people of China, and between 1723 and 1731, the Yongzheng Emperor, with the stroke of a maopi, or writing brush, issued a bunch of decrees ending discrimination against them. Sadly, although this ended legal discrimination against these people, things more or less continued on for a number of social reasons. Another reason, the chief among them were, well, people's attitudes were about as easy to change in uh, Qing Dynasty China as they are today in the 21st century. So, and another reason was that after so many generations and generations of engaging in these careers, that's that's pretty much all they knew how to do. So an oyster fisherman isn't suddenly going to declare himself a candidate for the civil service and start preparing for that first exam. The Yongzheng emperor died suddenly after a 13-year reign in 1735. Some say he died from the exhaustion brought on by his daily industry. He was such a hard-working emperor that he simply worked himself to death. And so the second of the three great Qing emperors passes from the scene and Next, we have his fourth son, who brings the Qing to its peak, the famous Qianlong Emperor. Lots to talk about with this emperor. The Yongzheng Emperor was determined not to botch his succession, like his father, the Kangxi Emperor, did when he died without naming a clear successor. Therefore, the Yongzheng Emperor went to great lengths to make sure there was no dispute in who succeeded him on the throne. The Qianlong Emperor was known to be the favored grandson of Kangxi and the favored son of Yongzheng. Although there were rivals, the last thing the Yongzheng Emperor did before he passed was to make sure the Qianlong Emperor didn't suffer the same fate he did with doubters about his legitimacy. 
We're going to try our best to squeeze the long reign of the Qianlong Emperor into a single episode. The Qing reaches its zenith as far as territorial expansion and world economic and intellectual power during his reign. After this, it'll be six more Qing emperors and we're through. Today's podcast mm, runs a little shorter than usual. I wanted to wait until next week and dedicate an entire episode just to the Qianlong Emperor. What more can I say, except this is your humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from good old Claremont, California, wishing everyone the very best wherever you may be. Please join us next week, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.